Open your Bibles this morning, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke, chapter number 18, and we begin our reading in verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted." I don't need to tell you, but I will, that we live in a world that is confused and corrupt and troubled by conflict. Everywhere you look, there is conflict, disagreements, arguments, debates going on. And it's because that we allow our differences to divide us. And whenever you look at all of the stat sheets and you could get on Google and look at all of the different stats concerning people and the way that, that we divide people up, uh, uh, we, f- we find there are several different ways. For example, there's the matter of race. Uh, some claim there are four races. Uh, others claim that there's actually five, and there are a few that believe that it ought to be divided up into six separate groups. The fact of the matter is, according to God's Word, there is only one race of human beings. It makes no difference whether your skin is black, yellow, white, or somewhere in between. There is only one race. He is made of one blood, all nations. So there's only one, but in the mind of man, there is all of this confusion. By the way, if you look up the nationalities, you'll find that there are supposedly 223 different nationalities. You look under religion, there's 4,200 known religions in the world today and everything in between. You look up languages, And believe it or not, there are 6,500 different languages uh, here on earth. That, that, That is amazing to me. But what if you tried to divide everyone up into, uh, into two groups? Yeah, first of all, you've got to decide, okay, what standard are we going to use? Uh, how about uh, the, the economic standard? And the only way to do that, of course, is to, is to decide on setting a poverty line somewhere that below this certain income line, you're in poverty. Above that, you're not in poverty. 
And so based on that, you divide everyone up into two separate groups. Or it might be that you would want to do it based on education. You might say on one side we'll put all of those who graduated from high school. On the other side we'll have all of those who don't. And so we divide everyone up that way. It might be that you prefer to use religion to divide up the population. And on one side you have the atheist and on the other side you have those that at least might believe as the agnostic that there is the possibility of a God and so you've divided it up that way. But I mention all of that to say this, according to God there's only two groups of people upon the earth and every one of us is in one of those two groups. And here in our text, we find two men who represent the two types of people that are upon the earth. And, and I'm not talking about the Democrats and Republicans or the liberals and the conservatives or the Americans and whatever else people might be. I'm talking about those that are saved and those that are lost. That's exactly what we see here. This is the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. I believe this is one of the most important of all of the parables in the Bible. And that's not to say the others are not important, but I'm saying that this here really strikes at the heart of man's problem. It gets right to the very root of our sinful human nature and uh, has to do with our sinful pride. And I want you to notice something interesting about this parable, and that's the fact that the Lord gives us the meaning of the parable before he even tells the parable. Did you notice that? I mean, that's, uh, uh, that's not the norm. But verse 9 says, He spake this parable in a certain notice, which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So right there you have the meaning of the parable. And so there's no doubt what this parable is all about. Uh, he gives us the information right up front. So with that in mind, let's look at the details. Here are two men. It's a picture of the two kinds of people that are on earth, those that are saved, those that are lost. But notice it begins with both men in the same boat. They're unsaved at the very beginning. This is the most awful condition possible you know we say well someone is dying of congestive heart failure or they have cancer or this or that or the other but the very worst thing imaginable is to think about someone being lost spiritually dead separated from God and that's true of every person who's never received Christ as their savior of all of the different things that we could use to describe people, this is the very worst. And I shudder to think about that there might be someone here today, there might be more than one that's here today that are lost and liable to leave in that same condition. Let me tell you, I pray that you won't. Whatever you do, however you came, whatever you've done, whoever you are, you need not leave the same as when you came. So listen carefully as we examine this parable. Notice there are two kinds of people. 
He says in verse number 10, there is the Pharisee. And the Pharisees, of course, were as religious as you can possibly get. They were religious, but they lacked any real righteousness. Paul tells us they had a zeal for God, but they lacked the knowledge of the truth. You know, a lot of folks got this idea, if I'm just sincere about what I believe, anything I believe is good enough to get me to heaven. No, it's not. You, you can be sincere and be wrong. You know, you, you, can, you can drink a bottle of poison thinking it's medicine, all because you sincerely misread the label. So they have a zeal, a religious zeal, but they lack a knowledge of the truth. And uh, boy, if works could get anyone into heaven, those fellows would have had it made. Because he gives us a list here. He, he, is, a, he is a Pharisee, a, a religious leader, by the way. He is respected among his, uh, among his group. He's a religious leader, somebody that people look up to. He's familiar with the Scriptures. But you know, it's one thing to know the Word of God and another thing to know the Son of God. You can be able to stand and to quote Scriptures all day long and uh, never know Christ as your Savior. There was a fellow called Blind Alec many years ago that had memorized the entire Bible, but he did not have a clue as to what John 3.16 meant. He, he, he couldn't explain that at all. He didn't understand. And so there are people that are familiar with the Word of God, can quote scriptures, but they've never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. This guy says, notice that he prayed at least, at least three times a day. So many times, you know, whenever we, uh, for example, on Facebook, someone will uh, mention something that they are in need of prayer, and you, you'll notice people say, I'm praying for you, or praying, or some response indicating that they're praying. I wonder how many times have you uh, failed to carry through on that? You know, it's real easy to just type, I, I'm, I'm praying for you. Are you really? Uh, you, you know, probably if the truth is known, we don't pray nearly as much as we like to think we do. But here's a fellow at least three times a day. And believe me, these people were serious about this. In fact, they made a big production out of it. Man, if they were out on the street corner and nobody had to wonder what they're doing over there because uh, they put on a demonstration of their supposed loyalty to God because they prayed at that certain time. But he didn't stop there. And he said he fasted twice every week. He fasted, he deprived himself of food and drink or whatever to some degree twice a week. He deprived himself. You know, fasting can be a good thing, and it is a good thing whenever we deprive ourselves for a spiritual reason so that we can concentrate. You've seen someone going through a crisis, a Christian. It might be in, in the case with with Bev having just lost her brother, and the last thing that was on her mind is uh, is eating. In fact, she had food whenever we got the message, food laying right there in front of her, and she certainly didn't, didn't want to spend time eating because she's emotionally dealing with that situation. Uh, I remember leaving a conference some years ago, and uh, 
this this preacher came out. We were walking. It was lunchtime. We were going over to eat. And so he comes up, sidling up next to me, and I knew him well. I, I'd known him back before he ever started preaching, in fact. But you could you could just tell a mile away that uh, that he's got something on his mind, and he just appeared to be troubled. Oh, he had. You know, I don't want to misjudge the fellow, but I but it was obvious that. I, that he had distorted his face to the point that he's waiting for somebody to say, what's wrong? You know. So finally, he's walking along with me and and he turns and he says, Brother Stone, have you, have you ever fasted? And I said, well, occasionally. I've, uh, I've not eaten because my mind was on more serious things. And he began to tell me how many days he had been fasting, what have you. Now, I thought to myself, you know, if you've got to make a point to brag to somebody about it, you're just wasting your time. And here these Pharisees, boy, they, they wanted everybody to know that I am fasting and praying three times a day, but he goes further than that. He says he tithed on everything he possessed. Boy, he didn't hold back anything, man. I mean, he made sure that 10% got in there on any kind of a gain that came his way. So this is the one man. Now our attention is turned over to the other fellow. He's a publican. That means a tax collector, by the way. Not just a tax collector, which as you might suspect would be very unpopular, He's not just a tax collector, he is a tax collector for Rome. So here is a man who is a Jew that is hired by the Roman government to collect taxes for them in that area. I mean, that'd be a whole lot easier for him, and they know it, than it would be to send some Roman soldier out there threatening people, so... But being a Jew, he's working for the enemy, and that was highly offensive to the other Jews. And in fact, they had gained a, a reputation for being dishonest. You know, and instead of just collecting the going rate for the tax, they thought, I'll, I'll just add a little bit to it. And it was, it was a common practice. Everybody knew it was going on, kind of like, you know, us knowing what's going on in Washington, we don't... We don't hear it on any of the news broadcasts, but everybody knows how crooked it is. We know it's going on, uh, and we despise it, uh, but, you know, there's not anything really we can do about it, and that's the way it was. The publicans, as a general rule, were very dishonest. They were trying to make as much as they could out of the deal, and that, that caused them to be despised even more. And so he's a tax collector, but he's also an outcast. He's not even allowed to attend the synagogues where the Jews would gather when not at the regular temple. And so he wasn't allowed to even take a part in that. He was so hated because he was considered to be a traitor to the Jews. In other words, here's a man, and it seemed like, now look, this guy might have been honest. I don't know. He was a tax collector. We know that. But he might have been honest. Uh, we don't have any grounds to accuse him. But in the eyes of everybody else, he's a dishonest traitor to them. So it seems like everything was against him, and it appeared as there is no hope for him. 
I mean, who's who's going to help somebody like this? I mean, he's the scum at the bottom of the barrel as far as anybody is concerned. So you have these two kinds of people. And then we see two kinds of prayer. Notice the one is haughty. The Pharisees' prayer, by the way, was shockingly self-centered. Really, you can't hardly even call this a prayer because his focus is not on God at all. His focus is on himself. You know, over in Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 5, it talks about the fact that the Pharisees, whatever it was they did, the Lord said, you do it to be seen of men. The only reason you do it, you want to make an impression on others so that you'll be more highly thought of. That was the motivation for everything they did. It wasn't devotion to God. It was a desire for them to get praise from man. And so that's what's going on. And notice he, he's boasting about himself and criticizing others. It's one thing, you know, to boast about yourself but, but he doesn't just leave it there. He turns right around and criticizes others. You know, I thank you for this and I thank you for that. And boy, I sure thank you. I'm not like that old, that old publican there. I, I thank you. I'm not like him. So not only is he talking boastfully, but he is trusting in himself and he is despising others. You might remember that in my last message, And by the way, this is the third message in a row that has to do with the subject of pride. In the last message, I spoke about the twofold aspects of pride's nature. There is the attitude of self-sufficiency in regards to God, and there's the attitude of superiority concerning others. I mentioned that there is in this idolatry and iniquity. And this is exactly what we see in this story. That's what makes it so important because it violates what? The two great commandments. Those two great commandments, pride violates them because it says in essence, I am sufficient of myself. I don't need God and I am superior to others and so I don't owe them anything whatsoever. So it's a violation of the two greatest commandments. So it's easy to see his problem is pride and it oozes out of every word in this haughty prayer. Now we see the other prayer, a prayer from the publican. And whereas the one was haughty, notice this is a very humble prayer. Notice he started by demonstrating his unworthiness. It says he was standing afar off. Oh, you know, the, the old Pharisee wanted center stage, man. He wants to get right up there. He wants to get to the inner workings, as it were, of the temple. But uh, the old publican, he was standing afar off. And he was ashamed. It says that he would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. He is ashamed he, to even look up to heaven as he prayed. And then notice as he was uh, remorseful, he smote upon his breast. He, it's as though he's saying, my problem's in here. It's in here. It's in my heart. It's in my inner person. 
You know, I am so sinful. I am so unworthy. My heart is corrupted. And he understood that. And let me tell you, nobody ever gets saved until they come to realize, first of all, that they are a sinner. That it'll never happen. That's why the preaching of the law is so very important. Some folks got the idea, oh, we don't need to preach the law today. We live in an age of grace. Indeed, we do. But it's the law that reveals to us our sinfulness in the sight of God. Even the great apostle Paul says, I would have not even known what sin was. But the law said, thou shalt not covet. And he said, that's the one that slew me. That's the one that put me to death. And then you see in this humble prayer, him praying for mercy. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice that he doesn't compare himself to anyone else. He doesn't say, Lord, help me to be better than so-and-so. Or he doesn't say, Lord, I'm better than, than that other publican over there that gave us such a bad reputation. He's dishonest. I'm not. But he makes no comparison to himself and anyone else. It, God be merciful to me. He doesn't say, God, I've been treated so unfairly. Give me what I deserve. He knew better than that. But God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then notice he is confessing his sinfulness in this prayer. He says, a sinner, a sinner. I don't know how a prayer could get any more sincere than this. It's short. It's simple. But it's as serious as it can get. Now, I know there are those who believe that in order to be saved, that you have to pray those exact words, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But if you believe that, you've missed the whole point of it. Anybody can repeat those words. I was gone in a revival meeting years ago, and so I had this fellow to come and preach. And uh, I, I thought I you know, had confidence in him and heard good things about him, so... I scheduled him to come and preach. Well, when I got back, I uh, had a, a lady there, her and her husband. They ran the uh, propane company in this little town. Uh, and uh, I got back, and, and anyway, uh, they claimed that she got saved. Well, yeah, yeah that's good. No, I thought she's already saved, you know. And so I thought, well, you know, surely she, you know, she'll want to be baptized. And so I talked to her and her husband just a brief bit and well yeah I need to get baptized I guess and uh, they didn't come back so finally I went over to their little office they had there in town and went in and and spoke with them about what is going on I, I thought you just trusted Christ as your savior and she said brother Stone said I am so confused I don't know which end is up I don't know I, I don't know what and I said why said, because she said, I, I, I realized I needed to be saved, and I came forward and, and said, as soon as I told him that, and she said, I, I, was, I was in the middle of calling upon the Lord myself, and, and he said, he just stopped me and said, you can't be saved that way. He said, the only way you can be saved is for you to pray those exact words, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's no wonder she was confused. 
And uh, so finally, uh, after a time, we got that all straightened out and everything was all right. But how sad it is that some folks so misunderstand God's Word. A lot of times we talk about prayer being involved in salvation. And by the way, it can be. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Prayer should certainly be involved in it. But let me tell you, prayer doesn't save anybody. It's not the prayer that saves you. Prayer might be the means that you express your faith to God that you are trusting in His dear Son to save you from your sins. It certainly can be involved in that. But it's not the prayer that saves you. And there's a lot of folks clinging to that. You ask them, are you saved? Oh, yeah, I know that I'm saved. Well, how do you know you say, Oh, well, when I was six years old, I walked down the aisle and I prayed a prayer and asked the Lord to save me. So I know, I know I'm saved. The prayer doesn't save anyone. But it's the attitude of this man's heart. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God knew what he meant. That's all that matters, regardless of how he worded it. You know, even some young children that are saved at, let's say, six, seven, eight years old, they they don't always know how that, uh, you, you know, that they ought to express themselves. They just know that they have that they're a sinner, that they need Christ as their Savior, and the best way they know how, they call out and trust the Lord as their Savior. And I'll tell you, it might not satisfy you, but it's good enough for God because He's looking on the heart, not just the way that you word the prayer. But God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what every sinner needs is the mercy of God because just as grace gives us what we don't deserve, the mercy withholds from us what we do deserve. It withholds us from the rod of God's judgment. So we have two, two people. We have two prayers. And notice there are two promises made here in verse number 14. There are two promises. I'm talking about promises that God makes. And he says, I tell you. Boy, when the Lord says that, you better listen. I tell you. You know, there's a lot of times you think about a, a, a strict mother saying to us, I told you, and, and boy, he knows it's time to straighten up and listen. I told you. And he says here, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So here we see the results of these two prayers, or as different as they could be. The result of these two prayers are 180 degrees apart from the other. And notice the one who exalted himself, he says that he shall be humbled, but the one who humbled himself shall be exalted. In other words, the result of the one was rejection, and the result of the other prayer was reception. Or to put it another way, one had religion and one had redemption. Notice the two promises. The first one here in the first part of of verse number 14 is that one left justified. He went to his house justified. That word justified means to be declared not guilty. But there's more to it than that. 
You know, sometimes we explain it by saying that it means just as if I had never sinned. Well, you know, that captures part of it, but there's more to it than that because when someone is justified, not only is all of the guilt against them removed, but the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. That means although we have no righteousness of our own, the very righteousness of Christ who is perfect is imputed to us. You know, that that is so amazing that His righteousness is credited over to our account. And that change is immediate and it is permanent. It is eternal. We're not saved in degrees like sanctification, we are automatically at that very split second, we go from being a sinner to being a child of God. And that changes our relationship with God forever, you see. So rebels against God are suddenly reconciled to God. What could be more wonderful than that? To think about he who had lived in rebellion all of his life. He who saw no need of God. He who thought himself to be righteous suddenly realizes I am a sinner. And I'm I'm crying out for God to be merciful. And that that changes everything. And imagine what it must have been like. And I love the fact that the Lord included as a part of this promise. He said he went... back to his house justified he pointed out that he returned home why why would he do that well not had to do with something more than his shift being over i don't think it would have made any difference what he was doing it might be that he was in the first hour of his shift and he had more taxes to collect whatever he had planned for the day all of a sudden He put all of that on the back burner and said, man, I'm going home and tell everybody else what happened to me. You know, that's what happens when a person trusts Christ as their Savior. Suddenly they want everybody else to know about it because they want them to have what they've got. So one went, he left justified. The other left just as he was. Just as he was. And that is so sad. To think about glorious justification is wonderful, but to think about the grief of not being justified is woeful beyond description. And here we find one man who received, was received by God, the other man is rejected by God, and it all depended upon their approach to God. One was proud, self-sufficient, He didn't need anything from God. He was just using God on an ego trip. But the other fella, the other fella was humble. And he realized he needed God. Now, in light of those two promises, it leaves us with two possibilities. This is where it gets personal. There are only two possibilities. I don't know what your spiritual condition was when you came to this service. Uh, You know, with a lot of you, I suspect I do. I look at a lot of you. I've heard what you've said. I've watched your life, and I have no reason to believe that you're not a child of God. But I, I, I don't know everybody here that well. 
And even sometimes those that we think we know so very well, we don't really know as well as we think we do. But I do know this, that you're either saved or you're lost, one of the two. There are no exceptions. There is no middle ground. There's only two possibilities when it comes to how you will return home. How are you going back home? It might be that you came here this morning as a sinner in need of salvation. Oh, I beg you, don't go home that way. You don't have to go home that way. You can go home knowing that you're a child of God, but it's your choice. God doesn't force His salvation upon anyone. And I can also tell you that that if you're saved, it's not because of what, what you've done. It's all because of what Jesus did. It's His sacrifice. It's not our service. It's the sacrifice that He made. You know, we're not born again as a result of our of our behavior. I mean, the Pharisees put on a good show. They really did, but that won't get you to heaven. It's not your behavior. You see, even as an unsaved person, you can reform your life to a certain degree. You reform so that you will conform to the expectations of others. And so they look at you and say, man... That guy must have got religion. Boy, I can tell you what, he, he definitely made some changes. But even a, even a lost sinner can make changes, but that's not the same as being born again. You're not saved because of your behavior. Actually, you're not even saved because of your beliefs. There's a big difference in, in believing something and trusting something or someone. And somebody can say, well, boy, I'm a firm believer. Well, that's well and good. And if you mean believe in the sense of having your faith in Christ, that's all it takes, is that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But just because you say, well, I believe the Bible's the Word of God, or you might even say, I believe Jesus died on the cross. You might even say, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe He arose from the grave. You, you, let me tell you, every major denomination in America believes that. But then they turn right around and tell you, but, but you need to be baptized if you're going to heaven. Or you need to join our church if you're going to heaven. They always attach some condition to it. And at the very moment anyone attaches something else to it, you just ruined it. It's another gospel, as Paul put it. We're saved by grace through faith, and that alone. So it's not our baptism, it's not our behavior, it's not our beliefs, it's not our boasting. The only way for anybody to be saved is to be humble enough to trust what Christ did for them. But proud people refuse to do that. They don't want to admit that they need God. And it will cost them everything for all of eternity. But what doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? How is it with you this morning? Have you ever come to that place in your life that beyond a shadow of a doubt you knew that you were a sinner 
And by that I mean you knew that you had violated God's holy, righteous standards. And you had sinned in His sight. Don't compare yourself to somebody else. But it's failing to meet that standard. And that standard is perfection. And as James said, to fail in one point is to be guilty of all. You don't have to rob a bank, slit somebody's throat, or do something like that in order to be lost. Just being a sinner. And the only thing that would ever keep you from receiving Christ as your Savior is that old stubborn pride that's not willing to humble yourself and to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How are you going home this morning? I hope you, you're able to go home knowing all is well. We're going to stand and sing a verse of invitation. And if God's speaking to your heart this morning, I hope that you'll come. If we can be of help, or right where you are, you might trust the Lord as your Savior, and then come and tell us about it. You don't need to come and uh, pray here in front of somebody, but, but you know that you've received Christ as your Savior, and so you want everybody else to know. Father, I pray you'll bless your word this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit might convict hearts. And Lord, that you might break down those stubborn barriers that pride has erected and help each and every one of us to realize that without you, without your saving grace, that we'd all be condemned to a devil's hell. And I pray you'll save that person that's nearest hell this morning. Help them to not leave here the same as when they came. For we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now as we stand and sing. Amazing.